and shine Africa Zorka Africa Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabisa Luhuko and Tami Kuza. Our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Attacks on aid workers in Central African Republic threatens relief efforts. Botswana's president refutes claims that his government does not respect the rule of law and South African parliament adopts controversial Gandla report. In economics, G20 leaders prepare to meet in Australia and in sports news, DRC ready to face Cameroon in AFCON qualifier. But first up, the news with Onelensinzi. The death of Zambia's President Michael Sata has seen more division and power struggle in Zambia's ruling party. The patriotic front in each day, things are taking a new twist. Yesterday, the party's highest organ, the Central Committee, sat with 63 of those present, endorsing party Secretary General Edgar Lungu as the presidential candidate. The move described by acting President Guy Scott as upsetting. Atasikopo has more. A requirement that when a president dies and you need to replace him, you have to do so by going to what we are calling a general conference. What upsets me, or what is upsetting us at the moment, there's been a petition that's gone round in Parliament, which about 60-odd MPs have signed, saying we endorse Honourable Edgar Lungu as our sole candidate for this upcoming by-election, presidential by-election. And that is actually contrary to what's in the president of the constitution. And that's what this kafwafwa this morning was all about, was tear gas and what and what and what. It's very sad. Scores of Boko Haram fighters have invaded two towns in northeast Nigeria's Adamawa state after hunters and civilian vigilantes reportedly ousted them from a key town. The Islamists raided Hong and Gombe, some 100 kilometers from the state capital Yola, after they were pushed out of the commercial hub of Mubi, which they seized two weeks ago. Boko Haram is thought to have captured more than two dozen towns in Yobe, Bono and Adamawa state in recent months as part of its quest to establish a hardline caliphate in the region. 
Seleka rebels in Central African Republic have blocked two highways through the capital Bangui and exchanged gunfire with United Nations peacekeepers yesterday. The fighters, based at a military camp in Bangui since their leader ceded power to a transitional government in January, were protesting against a plan to relocate some of their ranks out of the capital to improve security. Seleka has rejected the plan to be carried out by the International Organization for Migration, citing safety concerns. CR sank into chaos when the mainly Muslim Seleka rebels seized power in the majority Christian state in March last year, ousting President Francois Bouzizé. Government has again dismissed suggestions that strained relations between South Africa's capital Pretoria and Abuja have contributed to the delay to repatriate the bodies of the victims of the Nigerian tragedy. South Africa's minister in the presidency, Jeff Khadebe, is in Lagos as President Jacob Zuma's special envoy to fast-track the return of more than 80 South Africans who died on September 12th when guest house of TB Joshua's church collapsed. South Africa remains hopeful all bodies will be repatriated over the weekend despite earlier confirmations from Nigerian authorities that only 54 bodies have been verified. Khadebe says the process has to be allowed to unfold. The state of Lagos has to go through their own administrative procedures to make sure that when they hand over the bodies it is to the right family. We also on veto how that building collapse take into account the climatic conditions in Lagos. So we have to go through these scientific processes, the issues of fingerprinting, dental records, including DNA. So it takes some time. So, but we are confident that come Saturday we'll be able to ensure that we bring our compatriots back to South Africa. And finally, an expert witness who will testify about residue is expected to take to the witness stand where the murder trial of Sharon Duane resumes in the Western Cape High Court in the mother city of Cape Town in South Africa this morning. Duane is accused of orchestrating the murder of his wife, Annie, four years ago. The state's 16th witness will testify about the results of a prime residue test done on a yellow kitchen glove. The glove was worn by one of Annie's killers, Mziwama daughter Gwabe, on the night of the murder. Gwabe is already serving a 25-year prison sentence. His accomplice, Oli Lemgeni, was sentenced to life imprisonment after being found to have pulled the trigger. He died in prison last month. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It's 806 Central African time on this Friday, November the 14th, the 318th day of 2014, with 47 days left in the year. A top story, Botswana's President Ian Kama has refuted claims by his opponents that his government does not respect the rule of law. Kama's ruling Botswana Democratic Party challenged the standing orders of Parliament last week, delaying the first sitting of the House and sparking wide criticism. Kama maintains that he has no reason to undermine the Constitution and the rule of law. He tabled his State of the Nation address in Parliament yesterday. Itumelen Khajane reports. 
Kama used the State of the Nation address to lash at his detractors. He cleared the air in relation with the allegations that he wants to change the standing orders of Parliament and end the independence of the House. It is unfortunate, to say the least, that some individuals working through foreign as well as domestic media, including rumour mongering on social media, have attempted to instill the perception of Botswana living in fear. This is an apparent effort to undermine this country's long-standing and shared record of peace, order and good government. Kama says his administration will also push for diversification of the country's economy. Botswana's economy is heavily reliant on mining. Kama says the other sectors such as agriculture and manufacturing also have to add to the growth of the economy. Our economic diversification drive, EDD, is a key instrument for job creation. Since its 2010 inception, EDD has been facilitating employment-generating business opportunities by promoting the consumption of local products, while our immediate focus has been on leveraging public procurement in support of domestic industries. As we move forward, our emphasis will shift to developing greater internal capacity for export-led growth, while continuing to value local goods and services. But the opposition is not impressed with Kama's priorities, saying it's a repetition of last term's priorities. Dita Pelokiorapes is Botswana Congress Party parliamentarian. There are no new ideas in terms of how this economy, which is dependent, heavily dependent on mining, is going to be diversified away from mining sector. There are no real commitment. For instance, he talks about beneficiation, but he's not making a commitment. The Umbrella for Democratic Change leader Duma Boko argues that Kama will not achieve his goal for economic growth and others due to an environment that is not conducive. The president's speech is conspicuous by its silence on very, very critical and burning issues. There's a dire shortage of water. There's a shortage of electricity. So we are gravely disappointed. Kama has said his administration priorities such as reducing poverty and unemployment, improving the standard of education and empowering the youth. The death of Zambia's President Michael Sata has seen more division and power struggles in Zambia's ruling party, the Patriotic Front, and each day things are taking a new twist. On Thursday morning, the party's highest organ called the Central Committee sat with 63 of those present endorsing Party Secretary General Edgar Lungu as the presidential candidate, the move described by Acting President Guy Scott as upsetting. Arthur Skopo reports. The party national chairperson, Inonga Wena, presided over the meeting and had this to say to the media. We are taking the petition. Well, this is what, why we want to see the leader of the party, so that we find out whether it will be necessary for the uh, general conference to further endorse the decision of the central committee, or the decision of the central committee can be uh, communicated to the provinces, and we get their responses. But the party vice president, who is now acting as president for both the party and the nation, Dr. Guy Scott has overruled the decision by the 63, saying the party's constitution demands that they go for a conference and not just a few selected individuals appointing a candidate. 
Dr. Scott said the party will next week go ahead with a conference that will have about 5,000 delegates that will take part in choosing the party's presidential candidate, who will in turn go for national presidential elections. A requirement that when a president dies and you need to replace him, you have to do so by going to what we are calling a general conference. What upsets me, or what is upsetting us at the moment, there's been a petition that's gone wrong in Parliament, which about 60-odd MPs have signed, saying we endorse Honourable Edgar Lungu as our sole candidate for this upcoming by-election, presidential by-election. And that is actually contrary to what's in the President of the Constitution. And that's what this kafwafwa this morning was all about, was tear gas and what and what and what. It's very sad. The party is now awaiting the outcome of the meeting to be held by Dr. Guy Scott and the team that endorsed Edgar Lungu as sole candidate. Meanwhile, some youths marched to Dr. Guy Scott's office to protest against his decision, but their protest was short-lived as police in riot gear beat them up and locked them up for alleged breach of peace, according to police. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I'm Arthur Skopo. The South African Parliament has adopted the report of the Nkandla Ad Hoc Committee, which cleared President Jacob Zuma of any wrongdoing regarding upgrades to his Nkandla home. The majority of opposition parties rejected the report and in turn called for the president to be removed from office. The committee was established more than two months ago to look at Zuma's response to reports from the Public Protector, the Special Investigations Unit and the Security Cluster on multi-million dollar upgrades at Nganla. Zaline Merrington reports. You are not going to instruct me what to do, Honourable Members. Can you behave, please? Just for a change, behave. The rowdy debate on the Nkandla report started four hours after the National Assembly started and it turned out to be a very late night. The chairperson of the committee, Cedric Frolick, says they found that the president was not liable for any of the costs. The president should consider whether any members of the executive authority failed to implement the provisions of the cabinet memorandum of 2003, either through complacency or negligence in the execution of their duties and, if necessary, take appropriate action. The president should also note the instances where the executive authorities, especially the former minister and deputy minister of public works, did not act according to the prescripts of the PFMA and, if necessary, take appropriate action. The leader of the opposition, Musi Maimane, once again called for the president to be removed. This was one of the findings in the alternative report on Kandla. Maimani harshly criticized the president. The president has been party to a deception of the grander scale. Public money was stolen at Nkandla, and now the president cowers in shame, hiding behind the ANC numbers in parliament. Most abhorrently, it was money stolen from the poor people of this country who struggle every day to get ahead. This, honorable members, is nothing short of an impeachable offense. The IFP MP Naren Singh says the ad hoc committee never addressed the non-security upgrades. The IFP rejects this report as predetermined, politically biased and embarrassingly deceptive. Not once does it admit to non-security upgrades.
the swimming pool, the tuck shop, the amphitheater, the cattle crawl, and the chicken coop. But, Honorable Speaker, the chickens have not yet come home to roost. The ACDP cautioned committee members that the report would not stand up in court. Steve Swart asked them to reconsider. I studied it very carefully, the report, and it selectively quotes those parts of the public protector's report that suits its version, that exonerates President Zuma. But when it comes to the findings and the remedial actions, it does not implement those at all. It's untenable in law, and I plead with the, with the members of the ANC, reconsider it, because this will not be upheld by a court of law. It will not be upheld. Several opposition parties made declarations at the end of the debate, used as a strong indication of their disagreement to the topic at hand. The Freedom Front Plus MP, Corne Mulder, pleaded for MPs to have some integrity. Maybe we should take note of what Professor K.A. Bushwa from Ghana wrote about democracy, and he said the following. Freedoms may be provided in constitutions and bills of rights may be passed, but they will make it difficult for arbitrary acts to exist. But they will not by themselves secure democracy. There are unwritten rules such as honesty, integrity, restraint and respect for democratic procedures. That is what we are all lacking today. Only the NFP and the APC from the opposition benches supported the report. But in the end, members voted on the matter. Uh, honorable members, the results are as follows. Um, yes, 210. No, 103. And abstain, uh, zero. The... The report is therefore adopted. That was Lechisa Tsinodi, Deputy Speaker of the South African Parliament, ending that report by Zeline Merrington in Cape Town. The year 2014 represents a historic milestone of 20 years of freedom and democracy in our country an occasion to reflect on what has been achieved by South Africans working together. We have representative legislatures, an independent judiciary, independent public audit, an independent reserve bank, and independent constitutional bodies to provide checks and balances and protect the rights of citizens. Thanks to our progressive constitution, South Africa is a successful story. South Africa is a good story. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Attacks and extortion perpetrated against providers of humanitarian assistance are on the rise in the Central African Republic. Recently, a truck 
a transport truck with medical supplies and clearly identified as operating for the global aid agency Doctors Without Borders or MSF was stopped and held captive by an armed group. This on the route linking Pauwau in the north to the capital Bangui. A day later, a second MSF vehicle was held by the same armed group on the same road. For more on this, Jane Matebula spoke to the agency's humanitarian advisor, Jens Pedersen. I mean, throughout the current conflict and since the beginning of the current conflict in December 2012, we have seen attacks and we've seen increased attacks and targeting of aid workers, aid convoys, and aid facilities such as clinics and hospitals. However, in the past four to six weeks, we've seen very, very worrying increase in direct attacks, and we have seen convoys, trucks carrying aid supplies from Bangui, the capital, to more remote areas being stopped, being robbed, being blocked from accessing and being blocked from delivering the highly needed aid that they carry. Jens, we know that under international humanitarian law, humanitarian providers in conflict situations should be respected. Why do you think that this is not happening in the Central African Republic? It's a question we, we should really ask the fighting parties, but of course at the moment the environment in the Central African Republic is very volatile, it's almost anarchic. There is no measure of accountability for the ones who perpetrate these attacks on aid facilities or even worse uh, facilities. The peacekeeping forces from the United Nations, there's a European stabilization force as well. Neither of these are managing to fulfill their role of protection. And it's basically a vacuum of anarchy that is taking place at the moment in the Central African Republic. Now, is MSF managing to operate under the circumstances or is the organization being forced to perhaps suspend its activities? At the moment, we are continuing with our current operations of 14 projects clinics and hospitals in across the country. We have in the past had incidents where we were forced to suspend temporarily some of our projects and locations where we are not able to return to at the moment. It's of course always a very, very difficult decision. We try as long as possible, as long as security allows, to maintain all of our clinics and hospitals open. Of course, we do that knowing that are we forced to close, many people will go without highly needed medical care. And lastly, Jens, just to conclude our conversation, what would you say are MSF's concerns currently in the Central African Republic? Well, our main concern is that the security is worsening. And, of course, targeting aid workers, targeting aid facilities has consequences in the sense that these services are provided for people in dire need. On top of that, deteriorating security is impacting on the civilian population, their freedom of movement, and we're worried that the current insecurity in the country, if not checked, will deteriorate further and we will have only greater humanitarian needs. That was Jens Pedersen, humanitarian advisor for Doctors Without Borders, on the line talking to Jane Matebula. The South African government has appealed for families of the victims of the Nigerian tragedy to be patient as they remain hopeful that all 85 bodies will be repatriated over the weekend. Anxiety has intensified for the families after the governor of the state of Lagos, Babtunda Raji Fashola, indicated that only 54 bodies had been positively identified and can be returned home. Minister in the Presidency, Jeff Khadebe, who is in Lagos, believes that the number will increase in the coming days. Makati Gallens has more from Lagos. 
A walk through the site of the September 13 tragedy. The multi-story guest house reduced to rubble in seconds, killing 116 people. Emotions ran high. Minister in the office of the presidency, Jeff Khadebe. Uh, my mind is with the families of the bereaved and all those who have been injured. I can see for myself what a tragedy it has been. Eight one South Africans perished here. Inside the church on the big screens, they show videos of the difference between a controlled demolition of a building and a collapse caused by structural failure. The church has insisted that evil forces were behind the collapse of the church. This is an extract of an earlier interview I had with Synagogue Church of All Nations spokesperson Bali Chweni. Do you still believe that this was a Boko Haram attack? Well, I think what the prophet uh, T.B. Joshua again indicated is that These are the dark forces who have caused this particular building to collapse. And we maintain that is the position from where we are as a church. We absolutely believe that the cause of the collapse of the building has got nothing to do with um, the so-called structural defects attributable to the church. But as the inquest continues, the priority for the South African government is for the bodies to be returned home. They remain hopeful that all 85 bodies, including those of Congolese and Zimbabwean nationals, will be repatriated over the weekend. This is despite the governor of Lagos State, Babatunde Rajifashola, saying on Tuesday that only 54 South African bodies had been verified. Khadebe believes this number will increase in coming days. That's work in progress. They've committed themselves, the governor, as well as the chief pathologies of the state of Lagos, working with a South African company in Stellenbosch to make sure that by the time we leave on Saturday, 85 of those bodies will be repatriated. So as we speak now, the 54 is work in progress. I'm sure by the time we leave, the number would have gone up. Khadewe has appealed to families to hang in there, describing the coming days as the last mile in what has been a harrowing two months for those desperately waiting to bury their loved ones. We empathize with the families of the deceased. As you know, in terms of our South African custom and tradition, we normally bury the deceased within one week. Now it is two months and two days since the tragedy took place on the 12th of September 2014. So we really appeal to our people, especially the families, just to bear with us that uh, it's now the last mile. As they say, it is the darkest hour before dawn. So the Department of Social Development is in constant contact with all the families of the deceased in order to ensure that we can bring this closure as soon as possible. Government is ready for the repatriation with two aircrafts expected in Lagos on Saturday to collect the remains of the victims. The bodies are expected back in South Africa on Sunday. The final number of the bodies will be announced on Saturday. I am Mahatzegalens in Lagos, Nigeria. A delegation of senior officials of the African Capacity Building Foundation has been holding consultative meetings with several countries in sub-Saharan Africa with the objective of identifying capacity needs of the region leading to sustainable development. The foundation operates in at least 45 African countries with huge investment in indigenous human capital. Mwagi Konyo reports from Nairobi. Intro. A delegation of senior officials of the African Capacity Building Foundation has been holding consultative meetings with a number of African countries 
including regional institutions south of Sahara, with the objective of identifying capacity needs of the region leading to sustainable development. The African Capacity Building Foundation operates in at least the 45 African countries. And that report by Mwai Kikonyo from Nairobi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Ebola virus disease outbreak in West Africa has passed what has been described as the grim milestone of 5,000 confirmed deaths. Anthony Banbury, the special representative and head of the UN mission for Ebola emergency response, UNMEER, on Thursday briefed the UN General Assembly on the global response to the outbreak. Banbury, who is based in Ghana, recently visited the three countries most affected by the outbreak, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Derek Mbata reports. During his briefing to the General Assembly, Mr. Banbury presented a slideshow depicting a geographic dispersal of the disease to highlight the challenges in combating the outbreak. He pointed out that in Guinea and Liberia, there is a marked improvement of the weekly caseload of Ebola, while in Sierra Leone there has been what he called a dramatic deterioration. And unfortunately, we have just passed the grim milestone of more than 5,000 confirmed deaths caused by the disease, and the real numbers are likely to be much greater. Mr. Banbury said that one of the points stressed by government leaders during his travels is the impact of the disease across all sectors of society. Citing the UN Children's Fund, he said Ebola is not only killing people, it is also causing fear and impacting their way of life. UNICEF estimates that there are more than 3,300 Ebola orphans, and I saw at many visits to Ebola treatment facilities, these young children orphaned outside the treatment facility where one parent had died, another parent was ill, it wasn't clear whether the child was Ebola positive or not, and it was truly a tragic sight. Regarding the global response to Ebola, Mr. Banbury said that Anmia needs more staff to be deployed to the districts to work where the disease is. In terms of the broader response, what's needed most are, as we adjust our strategy to the geographic dispersal of the disease, we need more Ebola treatment facilities, smaller ones, but more located in a dispersed manner, more community care centers, more partners on the ground to staff these centers, particularly giving the critical management skills to safely manage these facilities. We need greater mobility for the teams, and we need money to pay for it all. Dr. David Nabarro, the UN Special Envoy on Ebola, stressed the need to support the governments of the affected countries. The governments are telling us that they would like us to be looking at the longer-term issues at the same time as focusing on the most immediate challenges. And that, I believe, is extremely important because the long-term is now unless the response can at the same time be focusing on capacities for the future I believe that it will not be quite at the level that is needed. 
Dr. Nabarro said there is need to continue to mobilize the resources needed for the sustained efforts against Ebola. He also stressed that any emergence of stigma related to Ebola should be opposed. Derek Mbata, United Nations. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Onilin Sinti. Botswana President Ian Khama refutes claims by his opponents that his government does not respect the rule of law. The death of Zambia's President Michael Sata sees more division and power struggle in Zambia's ruling party. And South Africa remains hopeful that it will repatriate all victims of the Nigerian church collapse by tomorrow. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. An Indian doctor who conducted mass sterilizations that killed 13 women has been arrested after saying he was being made a scapegoat for a controversial family planning scheme. R.K. Guptao was taken into custody as anger mounted over the botched operations in central Chhattisgarh state, where women were paid to undergo a procedure that also left dozens in hospital. The impoverished women were given 23 U.S. dollars to undergo the surgery. Rana Sen has more. Police arrested a doctor who single-handedly performed laparoscopic surgeries on 86 women, one every two minutes, in Chhattisgarh state. The suspect was recently awarded for conducting 50,000 family planning surgeries in his career as a government physician. Gynecologist Ramesh Wali said the Chhattisgarh tragedy was in breach of a manual which prescribed just 30 procedures a day and that too by three separate surgical teams. Average time documented for this procedure is 15 minutes. And if you have more numbers, more target to achieve, you should have more instruments. You pull the instruments as per the number of patients so that the instrument is not repeated. This is what the message should go through. If you have more numbers, more number of personal operating, rather than doing it fast, that might create two complications. And a big lesson has to be learned from this incident. And aghast by the speed of the botched weekend surgeries, Wally said it was not humanly possible. I am not able to convince myself that 83 or 86 surgeries in 6 hours, uh, probably it is not convincing me as well. This is rather, rather robotic surgery, no, not done by the human hand. I mean, robots can do that far. Chhattisgarh is ruled by Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party. And as protests flared in the remote state and in capital New Delhi, Opposition Congress Party spokeswoman Yami Yagnik said many questions remain unanswered. Who are these health workers? Which are these government programs? Who has fixed the targets? And why this economically disadvantaged class? Why they have not gone to the elite or the middle class? Why have they pressurized these uh, tribal people? Things and what about the biomedical waste, the medicine and the syringes and all the bottles littered? We talk about environment safety. We talk about women's safety, women's health care. And look at what Chhattisgarh government has done. I think the chief minister should just step down. He's the head of the state. 
where he is not even coming out and saying what is happening. And prominent Supreme Court lawyer Abha Singh said doctors have killed many more for cash than 350 sterilization linked deaths reported between 2010 and 2013 by the national government. Doctors have behaved rashly and negligently. They have endangered the lives of these other women. That also has an imprisonment of two years. This necessary suspension is not the solution. Not only should they be arrested, but the medical councils of India should cancel the license of these doctors. These doctors should not be allowed to practice ever in their lives. Only then the message would go. Doctors are paid $2 per surgery, while female patients get 10 Sterilization operations are the backbone of India's decades-old effort to control its population, and 4.5 million women have so far volunteered. Some 34% of 700,000 Indian households recently surveyed reported using female sterilization as their birth control strategy, but only 1% relied on the male vasectomy method. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A delegation of senior officials of the African Capacity Building Foundation has been holding consultative meetings with several countries in sub-Saharan Africa with the objective of identifying capacity needs of the region leading to sustainable development. The foundation operates in at least 45 African countries with huge investment in indigenous human capital. Mwagi Konyo reports from Nairobi. The delegation of senior officials of the African Capacity Building Foundation has just concluded a three-day visit to Kenya after holding consultative meetings with the senior cabinet ministers, government officials and representatives of the foundation-supported institutions in East Africa. Some of the institutions funded by the organization have successfully registered a tremendous progress in capacity building process due to continued financial and technical support provided by the foundation. The delegation is led by the executive secretary of the foundation, Professor Emmanuel Zadozia. The ACBF was formed in 1991 to uh, help African countries to really address their serious capacity challenges, which is preventing them from achieving their development objectives. And since that, that time, ACBF has really, throughout the continent, contributed significantly in building human and institutional capacity in many countries. We operate in 45 African countries. We have 39 member states that are members of the ACBF Board of Governors and that contribute to our programs. So over these years, ACBF has been able to build thousands and thousands of uh, um, middle-level managers who are working in ministries across the the, the continent, finance ministries, uh, central banks, and other development um, entities in government. In East Africa, Kenya is among the highest recipients of the foundation's grants, mainly because it is the seat of many international organizations with regional focus. But the foundation has also been actively involved in the development and capacity building of the entire region, especially in the economic policy research and management of the regional economies. And according to the Executive Secretary of the Foundation, Professor Nadozia, the organization also supports other regional institutions involved in capacity building. When we support institutions such as the African Economic Research Consortium or when we support a central bank in a country, that's what we mean by that. Or more importantly, at the regional level, when we support the African Union Commission, 
in helping them to address their capacity needs, that is whether it's in terms of what they need for the institution to function better or to coordinate its activities, uh, or, or even sometimes building the institutions from scratch if it didn't exist. Uh, so when we do that and uh, help to create the African peer review mechanism, that is institutional building and, and support that we give to NEPAD. According to a report released by the organization, the foundation has made great strides over the past two decades in becoming one of the leading capacity development organizations on the continent. Knowledge and skills have been addressed with a focus on development challenges like poverty, economic growth, and job creation. Also, the continent has been facing other challenges such as terrorism, insecurity, and the Ebola epidemic. Yes, the ACBF philosophy is uh, very simple, that uh, Africa must develop in spite of its challenges, uh, that we cannot wait until we have what some people might call the optimum conditions for development to happen. So we are saying to ourselves, in spite of terrorism in parts of the continent, in spite of some of the uh, pandemics that will emerge here and there, how can we go ahead and make sure that we capitalize upon the things that are working, the things that are doing well, and be able to promote development in the continent? The reality, of course, is that because of the Ebola, some of the projects we have in the three uh, countries that are seriously affected have more or less halted at this point in time. The impact is also within the sub-region as well. So th- these challenges, of course, have negative impact on our ability to, to do, some, do our projects. In uh, South Sudan, for instance, and if anybody knows about the South Sudanese uh, situation, the capacity needs that there are just simply overwhelming. And uh, we wanted to go into South Sudan in a big way to assist that, this young country to address its capacity needs across, across the board. After the consultative meeting with government officials and other stakeholders in Nairobi, the African Capacity Building Delegation will also visit Southern Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Rwanda has launched the much-anticipated fourth-generation long-term evolution internet, LTE. This is considered a huge milestone for Rwanda's rapidly growing ICT sector. It is expected that the use of 4G LTE will boost job creation and create new opportunities to deliver better services across the country and raise the current 25% internet penetration to 95% in the next three years. Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. The official launch was conducted in Kigali Thursday. Rwandans can now enjoy the fastest internet, fourth generation long term evolution, as a critical economic stimulus for an economy that is increasingly becoming digital driven, commonly known as 4G internet. The fourth generation long term evolution internet network offers the fastest wireless communication on high speed data for mobile phones and devices such as modems and routers. Rwanda's Minister for Youth and ICT, Jean-Philippe Senjimana, alongside heads of telecom companies, as well as Korean Ambassador to Rwanda, Hwang Sun Taik, said the move was yet another milestone for the country. It is milestone. This launch is a promise delivered. It is an important milestone on Rwanda's journey of transformation from an agrarian-based economy to a knowledge-based economy towards our vision of a smart Rwanda by 2020. If there was any doubt in anyone's mind that Rwanda is on course to achieve our 2020 vision, today 
is your day. This is the proof. But this assurance had little in demystifying the perception of a number of Rwandans on the project. Many like Mcheshimane Immaculate question its affordability and availability. I think it is good that the 4G internet is here in Rwanda, but my concern is how many people in Rwanda have access on the internet. Because, for example, if we look at the 3G, which is phasing out, it has not been successful as it was intended. Because in Rwanda, many people do not access the internet, and even others do not know how to write and read, so they can't access the internet. So I'm wondering if this 4G internet is going to be successful if the 3G was not successful. Answers to these questions and concerns were ready from ICT Minister. That is very, very possible. Because, one, you can use internet to actually learn how to become literate. So we want this uh, 4G LTE to be a tool to deliver from basic education to the most advanced education. For now, 4G internet is only accessible in the capital Kigali, but will be extended to the rest of the country within three years. However, for some younger investors in the sector, like Clarice Iribajiza, seize the opportunity to showcase their achievements. Ladies and gentlemen, African apps finally have a home. Yes, as you all may know, the young people are quite excited about mobile applications development and a couple of years ago we were one of those young people we're still young but yeah um, Hehe Mobile was created four years ago with uh, a vision of building mobile applications that could empower Africans we've built uh, applications in sectors of agriculture transport healthcare education and really these applications were meant to serve the African continent with the launch of 4G internet now the government could mark off one or two targets under the second economic development strategy by connecting all sectors of the economy to ICT services. By 2018, the minister said, over the last five years, ICT sector has attracted around 45% of all foreign direct investments in Rwanda, while it also contributed 3% of the country's GDP in the last quarter of the year. It is projected to contribute by 4% next year. Rwanda targets to have 95% of its citizens connected to the internet by 2017 from current 25%. Silvanus Channel Africa News, Kigali. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy, and you can catch me on Ad Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Digana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The year 2014 represents a historic milestone of 20 years of freedom and democracy in our country. An occasion to reflect on what has been achieved by South Africans working together. We have representative legislatures, an independent judiciary, independent public audit, an independent 
Reserve Bank and independent constitutional bodies to provide checks and balances and protect the rights of citizens. Thanks to our progressive constitution, South Africa is a successful story. South Africa is a good story. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lihuku. The need to boost international trade and job creation by making the global economy more resilient to deal with the current and future shocks will dominate talks at the G20 summit in Brisbane, Australia this weekend. The group of 20 finance ministers and central bankers have recommended that the gathering focus on implementing reforms such as liberalizing multilateral trade and modernizing international taxation. Australian Treasury Minister Joe Hockey. Australia is ready to host the most powerful delegation in the world. The leaders that are coming here represent 85% of the world economy. And as such, there is a heavy burden on the shoulders of leaders and finance ministers to deliver on the plan to grow economic growth right across the world and therefore create jobs for millions and millions of people. Australia was determined at the beginning of this year to get real outcomes from the very significant investment necessary to host the world's leaders. Meanwhile, South Africa is to use the G20 summit to push for the adoption of the World Bank's proposal of a global infrastructure facility to help fund infrastructure projects in emerging countries. The World Bank estimates that an additional $1.1 trillion is needed to address the growing infrastructure gap. Zuma explains. Africa has taken a very definite decision about the infrastructure to develop the African economy, to create inter-trade within the African countries. As you know, the trade with the world and Africa has always been one-sided. We are saying things should now change. There must be radical economic development in the continent, which must be inclusive. In other words, instead of Africa selling raw material. We must beneficiate. We must industrialize. General Secretary of South Africa's Trade Federation, Kusatu Zolinzimavavi, has justified distancing himself from the expulsion of trade union NUMSA from the Labour Federation. On Monday, Vavi wrote a letter to Kusatu asking that an alternative solution be found to expelling the Metal Workers Union. Vavi's letter was met with disapproval by Kosatu leaders who said he was bound by the decisions taken by its central executive committee. A planned liquefied natural gas export plant to develop Tanzania's vast gas reserves could cost up to $30 billion. East Africa has become one of the world's hottest new oil and gas areas after a string of discoveries which producers hope to exploit to feed energy-hungry Asia. Many top companies such as BG Group, ExxonMobil and Stat Oil are at work in Tanzania to tap its gas reserves. Financial indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, we are a globetrotter. 
The US dollar trades at 1119 South African Rand, 917 Botswana Pula, 633 Zambian Kwachas, 063 to the British Pound, 080 to the euro. Looking at commodities market, gold $1,159, platinum $1,190 an ounce, brand crude $78.13 a barrel. We're still here. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Tami Kunza. Welcome back. Let's start with soccer. DR Congo face a stiff challenge when they travel to study Omnisport Amadou Stadium to face Cameroon in group in a group of the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. In their very first outing in Group D, DR Congo suffered a 2-0 defeat to Cameroon, but they have shown in their following matches that they are capable of so much more. After their first defeat, DR Congo bounced back with a 2-0 win over Sierra Leone, and thanks to goals from Dobe, Mubele, and Jeremy Bokila. The head of Ghana's bid committee for West African country host of the Africa Cup of Nations in 2008, Kofi Amoa, says hosting a major football tournament as huge as the Africa Cup of Nations needs an ample time to prepare. Amoa spoke about the long, arduous years preparing for the tournament. I think uh, a new host nation will have a gargantuan task uh, to, to be ready to host it professionally. And, and without rush, I think uh, 60 to 70 days will not be adequate for, for most countries. Since Morocco is not going to do it, uh, it's going to be another country, uh, I think it will be difficult. Yes, I really think it will be difficult. And it could become a sham and a disgrace to Africa. And I think the people at TAF in Cairo need to listen to the voices of the sand who are saying that, please, there's something much bigger facing the continent. Let's postpone this and do it at the right time. And now in rugby, the Kenya Rugby Union, KRU, says implements given to its national team players will be sent to Qatar to be tested after doping investigators alleged that they contain steroids. The KRU also criticized the investigators who said that coaching staff members from Kenya 7s and 15A side teams should face disciplinary hearing for providing the supplements to players. The findings were by a task force set by the Kenya's government to look at doping in sports, especially among the country's distant runners. Part of the task force's report implicated the national rugby teams. Now in tennis, Roger Federer sent Andy Murray crashing out of the ATP Tours finals in a humiliating fashion with a 6-1 victory yesterday that ensured Japan's Kei Nishikori would qualify for the semifinals. Chris Bowers reports. As Roger Federer stepped up to serve the first point of last night's match against Andy Murray, there was a free song of expectation around the 17,000-strong crowd. 
It lasted about 10 minutes until Federer broke Andy Murray's first service game to lead to love. From then on, Murray's early aggression turned to doubt. Federer was able to soak up anything the Scot threw at him, and it was both a masterclass and a humiliation. When Murray got a first serve in, it was returned onto his baseline. When he missed his first serve, his second was thumped for clean winners. Murray could have made it to the semi-finals if he'd won in straight sets, but that dream ended after 24 minutes when Federer won the first set, and the Swiss came within two points of a 6-love, six 6-love six before Murray finally won a game. Even Federer's 6-love, six 6-1 six win in 56 minutes equals the time of Novak Djokovic's win over Marin Cilic earlier in the week. On this form, you have to say it'll be Djokovic and Federer in Sunday's final, and that promises to be a contest. Finally in golf, Miguel Angel Yamineth leads the Turkish Airlines Open after a superb opening round of 63. The overgreen Spaniard is 9 under par and a stroke clear of Iron Polter. Nick Dyke reports. Jimenez has won twice this season, as well as turning 50 and joining the senior tour. He's not been at his best lately, but on a Mediterranean course, he started in style, holding from the fairway at the first hole for an eagle two, and the birdies flowed from then on. Polter shot his round of the year in Shanghai last week. The 64 tops it in terms of scoring, although this course is easier, and he's feeling fit, healthy, confident with his game. The three players who could depose Rory McIlroy in the race to Dubai are struggling in comparison. Jamie Donaldson, Sergio Garcia, Marcel Ziem, all down the pecking order, unable to match the magic of Jimenez. And two South Africans and one Zimbabwean have got off to an excellent start, also at the Turkish Open. Brendan Grace recorded a 67 for 5 under par and Henny Otter followed suit, making seven birdies in a row during his round. Grace is happy with how he has played so far. Yeah, it was good. Um, front nine was a little bit slow, but um, you know we had a little bit of a wait there after nine holes because you know, myself, Burnt and John, is, you know, we're all three quick players and we had a little bit of a 20-minute wait and then um, you know, I think just, just settled a little bit, you know, and then... Um, you know, made a good birdie on, on the 11th hole and then just kept on going from there. So otherwise it was a good ball striking day and um, I'm happy with the start. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Attacks on aid workers in Central African Republic threatens relief efforts. And South African Parliament adopts controversial Gandla report. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mbumi with the song title Somandla. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625.